the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't say congratulations to the University of Alabama who defeated Ohio State 52-24 to for its third national championship in the college football playoff era. Well, in a season significantly impacted by the coronavirus pandemic, the Crimson Tide, well, they were able to come away with the first championship of 2021 at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida, and finish their season undefeated. Well, the victory makes it 14 consecutive wins for Alabama. The Crimson Tide haven't lost since November 30th of 2019. Do you remember 2019? You could kind of come and go as you please. You didn't have to wear anything on your face. Oh, those were the days of a sort. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, President Trump acknowledged that he bears some blame for the Capitol riots last week during a conversation with White House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Well, two sources say McCarthy, who's a Republican out of California, relayed the president's sentiment on a call on Monday with House GOP conference. McCarthy on the call Monday with Republicans agreed that Trump bore blame for the unrest, which sent Congress into lockdown as they tried to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election last week. The White House didn't immediately respond to requests for comment and has since said, no, I don't bear responsibility uh, to others. Well, the riot left five people dead, including one Capitol police officer. The riot came after the president spoke at a rally last Wednesday telling supporters that he would never concede and repeated unsubstantiated claims that the election was stolen from him, although there were some irregularities, and that uh, he won in a landslide. Well, a Trump voter says the Capitol riot tainted his legacy, erasing all the good that he did in the last four years. And two Capitol police officers have been suspended, while several more are under investigation after Wednesday's event. Trump and Pence, the vice president and president's bios on the State Department website, were edited to say their terms ended on Monday. Later learned that it was an inside job by a disgruntled employee. And a Capitol rioter and Air Force veteran has been arrested after his ex-wife called the FBI. And the Secret Service plans to begin their Biden inauguration security operations on the 13th. A Tennessee man seen in the Senate chamber with zip ties is being held without bond. They're identifying and holding those responsible for the damage done there. Well, President Trump and Vice President uh, Pence met in the Oval Office for the first time since the infamous Capitol riot. President Trump and the vice president met Monday for the first time uh, as Pence oversaw an effort to by congressional lawmakers to certify president-elect Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College. Now, president Trump lashed out at Pence last week after the vice president said that he lacked authority under the Constitution to overturn election results on the president's behalf. The vice president and other lawmakers were forced to flee the House and the Senate chambers as rioters breached the Capitol complex. Well, after a days-long rift, Trump and Pence met in the Oval Office to discuss the final days of their administration and its accomplishments since assuming office in 2016. An administration official with knowledge of the meeting says, 
um, of the event. Well, the longtime allies criticized the individuals who participated in the Capitol riots. The official added Trump and Pence pledged to continue to work on behalf of Americans until Biden is inaugurated on the 20th of January. In other developments, President Trump slammed his vice president, saying Pence didn't have the courage to decertify results. Secret Service are investigating death threats against the vice president since then. Arnold Schwarzenegger condemned President Trump as, in quotes, the worst president ever after the Capitol riots. Meanwhile, Sean Hannity is warning contents of the Hunter Biden laptop will shock the soul of this nation. I'm not sure the nation needs another shock to its soul, but nonetheless, nor am I convinced that we're ever going to find out what was on that laptop. But uh, Fox News primetime host John Hannity said on Monday that the contents of the laptop will shock the soul of the nation, citing numerous credible sources close to the matter. Uh, the uh, host made the comment during his opening monologue Monday night. He blasted big tech censorship following the recent suspension of President Trump's social media accounts. He said the move didn't surprise him after circulation of the New York Post reporting on the condemning Hunter Biden emails during the 2020 presidential election campaign were restricted. Hannity said the contents of the younger Biden's laptop, which has been in possession of the FBI, will shock the soul of the nation. In other developments, a computer shop owner has um, sued Twitter over the Hunter Biden laptop story. Meanwhile, sources say the FBI is in possession of said laptop. New York Governor Cuomo's tone is shifting after months of coronavirus lockdowns. And Ari Fleischer is warning that big tech is wrong to believe censorship works. It creates a dangerous underground, he says. CNN's Don Lemon and Governor Cuomo, they clashed over whether you can yell fire in a crowded theater. And Alabama beat Ohio State for college football national title, finishing the season undefeated. Well, in response to Capitol rioting, Elon Musk is weighing in on big tech censorship. And Hallmark asked Senator Hawley and Marshall, senators I should say, and Marshall to return their PAC donations. Well, a study shows that New Jersey and New York um, lose the most movers to other states, or rather lost in 2020. And Airbnb is reviewing reservations prior to the inauguration in search of hate groups. A YouTube rival is suing Google for unfairly rigging search algorithms, and Carnival is bracing for another sizable loss since the coronavirus outbreaks, according to the Wall Street Journal. Well, the House is planning to vote uh, probably today on the 25th Amendment resolution against President Trump. I say probably because with our current circumstance, we pre-record our program. And so while they may be debating as I speak, may have settled the issue when the program takes to the air, we don't yet know. Well, their impeachment resolution cites Trump's incitement of the Capitol riot. President Trump acknowledged to Kevin McCarthy that he bears some blame. Meanwhile, in big tech, Twitter is suspending more than 70,000 QAnon-linked accounts. Facebook is banning all mentions of Stop the Steal ahead of Joe Biden's inauguration. Facebook is suspending Ron Paul following a column criticizing censorship. And Parler is suing Amazon for suspending the app from its cloud service. YouTube rival Rumble sued Google for unfairly rigging search algorithms, and Stripe has stopped processing payments for Trump's campaign website. Did you keep up with all of that, who's suing whom? Aretha Franklin should redo that song if she were here, who's suing whom. Anyway, a wave of companies cut off donations, much of it to the GOP, and Trump has been dropped by the biggest lender, Deutsche Bank, for future business. 
Uh, Cumulus Media is threatening to fire conservative radio hosts who suggest the election was stolen and the biggest gun forum has been kicked off the Internet without explanation. For the record, several Capitol Police officers have been suspended for misconduct and the outgoing Capitol Police chief says he requested National Guard backup six times and was denied. Fallen officer Brian Sicknick, we now know, was a Trump supporter. The Washington Examiner is highlighting six videos of Democrats calling for violence or physical confrontations that are still active on Twitter. And Twitter hasn't suspended other accounts or tweets that incite violence. Bill Gates. uh, Well, and let me just say this. I'm not suggesting that that uh, President Trump is justified. I'm suggesting there needs to be a level playing field. Incitement to violence, whether it's on the right or the left, should be addressed in similar ways. No, in the same way. Let's put it that way. In other news, Bill Gates bid for largest um, private jet firm just weeks before publishing his climate change book. And New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick says he won't accept president's, uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom from the president. The Justice Department is pursuing at least 150 suspects in the Capitol riot. And the State Department has designated Cuba the state sponsor of terrorism. Trump approved an emergency declaration for D.C. ahead of Biden's inauguration as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Trump administration is uh, making sweeping changes to speed up the pace of vaccinations. And foreign leaders are shocked at Twitter and Facebook booting Trump. Now, that doesn't mean they agree with him. But the uh, the notion that um, these giants would boot out the boot off rather the president of the United States, Germany and France voiced their objections. And there were more from The Wall Street Journal. Uh, Google, Facebook and Twitter should be treated as state actors under existing legal doctrines. Using a combination of statutory inducements and regulatory threats, Congress has co-opted Silicon Valley to do through uh, the back door what government cannot directly accomplish under the Constitution. It is axiomatic, the Supreme Court held in Norwood versus Harrison, that the government may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to accomplish what it is constitutionally forbidden to accomplish. That's what Congress did by enacting Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which not only permits tech companies to censor constitutionally protected speech, but immunizes them from liability if they do so. Meanwhile, a Hill article headline screams nearly 6,000 lawyers and law students call for uh, disbarment proceedings against Cruz and Hawley. From Dinesh D'Souza, he says, at first I thought 6,000 lawyers, whoa, then I read the law students and I began to laugh rather loud. Well, the man who made a career being vile and disgusting, Sasha Baron Cohen, wants YouTube to ban Trump. And Matt Walsh looks at the intense hypocrisy on these issues. You can read about that on The Daily Wire today. Well, on Friday, Parler was the number one app as of today. It's no longer accessible. And now it's gone dark as the uh, uh, keeper of the flame, if you will, keepers seek to shut down all conservative voices. Now, I'm going to pursue that in greater detail later in the program. Exactly what is it that Parler was permitting on its site? You might be surprised uh, to learn. From the Wall Street Journal, Amazon.com Inc. abruptly ended web hosting services to the company, effectively halting its operations, prompting Parler to sue Amazon in Seattle federal court. Other tech partners also acted crippling operations. Parler, meanwhile, may have found a home. Um, Ben Stein says freedom of speech is gone. The media and high-tech barons and princes 
have gone completely mad to kill the site called Parler. That was the free speech zone site that allowed uh, postings by anyone left or right. If undoubtedly, or rather it undoubtedly ran some shocking pictures and words that should never have been run, there was no precedent for this shutdown of free speech. Nazis and Muslim terrorists still have use of the Internet. Only the president, who got more than 70 million votes, is shut off. But the Internet has always had staggering amounts of really deep uh, pornography. It has had endless coverage of the notorious Jew-hater fan de Führer, uh, Louis Farrakhan, and it has uh, instructions on how to make bombs and automatic weapons. These were all allowed and caused very little stir, were allowed and continue to be allowed, I should say. Well, Twitter's stock is tumbling. From the Business Insider, Twitter stock fell as much as 12% on Monday after the social media company permanently suspended the president, his account on Friday evening. The share price declined, wiped $5, uh, rather $5 billion from Twitter's market capitalization, according to the Business Insider. Yahoo News says shortly after markets opened on Monday, the stock dropped as much as 12.3% to reach uh, as low as 45.17 per share. That's $45.17. Well, the Supreme Court will hear a case of a college shutting down Christian speech on campus. The student explained their case in the Washington Post piece, and we're Hoping to have a conversation on that very subject tomorrow as well. Governor Cuomo of New York is calling for the country to reopen. Andrew Cuomo tweeted, we simply cannot stay closed until the vaccine hits critical mass. The cost is too high. We will have nothing left to open. We must reopen the economy, but we must do it smartly and safely. A sizable shift from his recent past. And Ron Paul has been blocked from managing his own Twitter account, The former Republican representative of Texas claimed he was suspended from managing his public Facebook page Monday with no explanation other than repeatedly going against our community standards at Facebook has blocked me from managing my page. Well, never have we received notice of violating community standards in the past and nowhere in the offending post identified or is the offending post identified He tweeted, well, Paul's uh, latest weekly column, which criticized big tech for censoring large portions of public opinion, was the last thing he posted on Facebook. And on this day in history, 1959, Motown Records, originally Tamala Records, is founded by Barry Gordy in Detroit. 1828, the United States and Mexico sign a treaty of limits defining the boundary between the two countries, to be the same as the one established in 1819 in a treaty between the U.S. and Spain. On this day in history, 1915, the U.S. House of Representatives rejects 204 to 174, a proposed constitutional amendment to give women nationwide the right to vote. On this day in history, 1932, Hattie Carraway becomes the first woman elected to the U.S. Senate representing Arkansas after initially being appointed to serve out the remainder of the term of her husband, Thaddeus. 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, Sepuel versus Board of Regents of University of, or- of Oklahoma unanimously uh, rules that the state law school could not discriminate against applicants on the basis of race. 1966, President Lyndon Johnson says in his State of the Union address that the U.S. military should stay in Vietnam until communist aggression there is stopped. And on this day in history, 2014, officials announced that Iran has agreed to limit uranium enrichment and to open its nuclear program to daily inspection by international experts.
Well, with only eight days remaining in President Trump's term, the House of Representatives is barreling toward a second impeachment vote in the coming days as uh, outrage about the president's role in the storming of the Capitol by his supporters last week continues to reverberate uh, reverberate rather throughout Washington. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the House uh, will take two major steps toward impeaching the president, which would uh, make him the only president to be impeached twice. Tuesday evening, the House will vote uh, around or rather after 7.30 p.m. Eastern time on a resolution from Representative Jamie Raskin calling on Vice President Mike Pence to use the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. That amendment sets up a process by which the vice president and a majority of the cabinet may declare to Congress that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, making the vice president the president with the shortest term ever in our nation's history. The vote likely will not happen until very late Tuesday night. If the vice president does not oblige and he is not expected to, then Democrats have said that they will move forward with a second impeachment of the president, starting with a debate on Wednesday morning. The House will next take up the Raskin legislation in regular order to call upon the vice president to activate the 25th Amendment. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said on Monday after Republicans objected to the passage of the uh, rather the Rankin uh, resolution via unanimous consent. We are further calling on the vice president to respond within 24 hours after its passage. And again, the vice president isn't expected to do so. She added that our next step, um, we will move forward with bringing impeachment legislation to the floor. The president's threat to America is urgent, and so too will be our action. Representative uh, David Ciceline, a Democrat from Rhode Island, said on uh, Twitter Monday, the Democrats now have the votes to impeach Trump for incitement of insurrection. The article claims that President Trump endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. He threatened the integrity of the democratic system, interfered with the peaceful transition of power, and imperiled a co-equal branch of government. He therefore betrayed his trust as president, so the manifest inquiry rather injury to the people of the United States. Beyond most Democrats backing the impeachment as they did when the House impeached the president in 2019, there appear to be several Republicans who may vote in favor of impeaching the president as well. This certainly would be another historic precedent. Well, the FBI on Monday released new photos uh, showing the suspect or suspects allegedly responsible for placing pipe bombs in Washington, D.C. We'll be back to talk more about that later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, William or Will Franklin Graham, the grandson of legendary preacher and renowned evangelist Billy Graham, has published his first book titled Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Uh, Will is the third generation of Grahams to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ under the banner of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Will makes the lessons from each devotional writing relevant to the reader. He weaves personal stories, uh, memories from the Graham family. He's also included special family photos of Billy Graham as well, adding sort of a heartfelt and unique perspective to what people think they know about Billy Graham's life and the family. 
Um, he writes that as he worked on the book Redeemed, I kept coming back to Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. He says of the book that I hope that Redeemed will honor my grandfather's legacy and the incredible way that God used him around the world. Well, readers will enjoy content that's centered on the life-changing power of a relationship with God with themes like prayer, sharing your faith, and the willingness to obey God's guidance and divine timing. Will shares his grandfather's passion for preaching God's word. Uh, he shared the gospel message across six continents since beginning his evangelistic ministry back in 2004 with youth-oriented one-day events in Canada. He also serves in the, uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in um, Asheville, North Carolina. The Cove offers multi-day seminars on a variety of Christian subjects and features nationally recognized speakers. Well, in addition to honoring his grandfather's life of impact, through his uh, devotional. Uh, Will recently attended the opening of the Billy Graham exhibit at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. that highlights Billy Graham's life, ministry, and legacy. Will also will uh, portray his grandfather in the theatrical release of Unbroken, Path to Redemption that opened uh, late last year. It chronicles the true story of Olympian and World War II hero Louis um, Zamperini, who survived uh, torture as a prisoner of war, only to endure nightmares, alcoholism, and a disintegrating marriage. That is until he finally found true hope and peace after accepting Jesus as his Savior in 1949 at a Billy Graham crusade, which, by the way, is depicted by Billy Graham's great-grandson, Will Graham. Well, he joins us today to talk about Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Georgine, great. Thank you for letting me come on your show today. Now, um, this is such a beautiful book because it uh, it's heartwarming to those of us who have loved uh, your grandfather for many years and uh, followed his ministry. Many of us came to faith through uh, his ministry, have been influenced uh, largely. And to to read your perspective, um, I think, just adds to our uh, our longing for that same kind of relationship and to know God in the way that not only your grandfather did, but your father and now you. So congratulations. Well, well thank you. It's... Um... It, it, I guess sometimes it's been a long time coming. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me to write a book, but God never allowed me to write a book. He was, um, you know, when I first was approached, uh, I don't know, a number of years ago, about a decade ago, um, people came up and said, we want you to write a book and we'll publish it. And I said, well, okay. And I started sitting down and I prayed about it and God just said, well, no, this isn't the right time. And he, he said that over multiple years and multiple times. And God just told me not to write and to focus on other things. And then uh, through this movie project that I did with Universal Pictures on, on the movie about Louis Zamperini, um, someone asked me to write a, a book, and I said, no, God doesn't want me to write right now, it, which was true, mm-hmm. but I didn't pray about it. And then all of a sudden, I went home and prayed about it, saying, God, when do you want me to write a book? He said, now. And so <laughs> um, he said, the time is now. And so I st- I've been working, you might say I've been working on this book for a long, a while, but now I've, I had to get it together and present it to um, Harper Collins or the people at Thomas Nelson at Harper Collins, and um, you know, and I was grateful for their partnership in this book. And um, you know, it's things I've learned. It's not a book about Will Graham. It's not a book about Billy Graham. Though I'm in it, my granddaddy's in it. Mm-hmm. Stories from us, but it's it's really about God. How God changed people's lives. What I've seen God do and teach me in different parts of the world. 
um, you know, the things I've seen, the things I've learned, the things I've watched and exhibited in other people like my grandfather and my grandmother, for that matter, uh, and through my father, uh, Franklin Graham. And so th- these are the things I want to pass on to other people, the things I've seen to encourage them to live the Christian life. You know, I really appreciate the way you described seeking the Lord's uh, counsel because it would have been easy being the grandson of Billy Graham, the son of Franklin Graham, to simply assume that this is the course that I should take, that if an offer to write a book comes, that's what I should do because of the life and legacy of of your family. But to seek God as an individual and to seek his direction for your life uh, speaks a lot, not only about your commitment to him, but about the legacy of your uh, parents and grandparents. How challenging um, has it been for you to find your own way as a follower of Jesus in the shadow of such uh, such great men? Well, it, it, I tell you, when I came to know Christ, uh, you know, people, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, you're Billy Graham's grandson; you get into heaven for free," <laughs> and uh, you, he's got extra tickets, I'm sure. And um, and and they say it with a smile. I know that they're you know they're teasing yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but. I had to come to know Christ. As a matter of fact, that's one of the first chapters in my book is how I came to know Christ. I want to share with people how Christ changed Will Graham's life. And it wasn't because I'm Billy Graham's grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was through communion. Uh, communion did not save me. I want to be real clear on that. Communion didn't save me. But what happened was it was Communion Sunday. I, I used to be in children's church. Now they kicked me out and now put me in grown-up church. I was too old to be in children's church anymore, and I liked children's church. They had great, they had great juice. They had vanilla wafers. I loved it. I had a <laughs> snack in there every time. And then uh, when I had to go up to grown-up church, I looked, and lo and behold, look, they had a whole bunch of loaves of bread up there, and they had grape juice, too. I was like, this is the best ever. I love grown-up church. <laughs> and when the, when the communion elements came by, I reached out to grab some because I thought it was snacks. I mean, that's all I thought it was. I didn't know it was something special. And my dad told me no. And he didn't hurt my feelings or anything. I didn't really think twice about it. I thought he was afraid I was going to spill the grape juice on the carpet or something. And so I didn't think anything of it. And uh, we went home to, and had lunch at home. And and then uh, dad took me up to my room and explained to me why I couldn't have communion. And that's because I'd never asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And so it wasn't because I was Billy Graham's grandson that was going to get me to heaven. It's because you know, because of what Jesus did for me. And when I was a little kid, I didn't understand everything in the Bible, but I knew that Jesus, or that God was real, that he sent his son Jesus to die in my place because I was a sinner, and I knew that I was a sinner. I'd done bad things at six years old. I knew I'd done bad things. I lied. I've stolen. Uh, I mean, I was a retro, you know, I was a bad kid. I mean, I was a good kid in, in a general sense, but I'd done bad things. And the, the fourth thing I realized is that I want to spend eternity with Jesus, and if I could, and the only way I could do that is to ask Jesus Christ to come to my life and to forgive Will Graham for Will Graham's sins. And so my father led me to the Lord, and that's how I came to know Christ. So, growing up in the Graham family, it comes with a lot of blessings. I tell people there's a lot of bad things that come with it too, but the good things outweigh the bad things. And it's I'm grateful to be a grandson of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. People love Billy Graham. It opens up doors for me. I'm grateful for the name of Billy Graham. And um, and so I I love living in his shadow because it's a wonderful shadow, and I'm grateful for the shadow that he presents. Um, but I'm not called to be 
merely Billy Graham's grandson. I'm called to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so wherever I go, I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever he has me to do. And uh, part of that was writing this book, and the rest of it, most of the time, it's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever he sends me. Now, as I mentioned, this is a devotional uh, for the longing soul. The title is Redeemed. Why did you choose this subject, and why do you think the Lord would have us reflect on these things at, at this time through your book? Well, that's a wonderful question. You know, uh, I'm not, to be honest, in all honesty, I'm not a very good person who comes up with titles. If you look at all my sermons, they're real boring title. Uh, like, because I, I was a pastor for a long time, so I preached a lot of, I preached in every book of the Bible, and I don't have very good titles on my sermons. Um, I'm just not creative. And so Harper Collins uh, and the people at Thomas Nelson helped me come up with the title Redeemed. But I wanted to say, and I loved it because Redeem speaks of something being restored to be brought back. And um, and so I like that title, and that's what I want this book to do: bring us back to the basics, um, to, to to help us redeem the time that we have left on this earth. And so I like that title, but I feel like it needed more. And then Psalm 107 verse 9 kept popping up when I was writing this book. When I first started writing this book, uh, my assistant, uh, she led devotions here at work where I live or where I work, and she she quoted this first, and it just it hit me good. It was one of those good hits, like, man, that is a tremendous verse right there. And I started studying Psalm 107, verse 9, and all of 107. On another page, the church I was going to, the pastor started a whole series on Psalm 107. And so when I ended the book, the pastor started preaching on Psalm 107, (laughs) verse 9. And so it was kind of like the bookends of writing this book. And I said, okay, God, you're trying to tell me something about this book. Uh, or this this verse here, and how it needs to apply to my book. And so Harper Collins helped me come up talking about this verse, uh, Devotions for a Longing Soul. There's so many people out in this world that are longing for more in life, and they try to fill it with sex. They try to fill it with drugs. They try to fill it with alcohol. They try to fill it with money, success, and it leaves them empty. And I'm here to tell you that God's going to fill your soul with great things, but he has to do it, and you can't do it. And so that's what this book's kind of about. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Will Graham. His uh, first book, titled Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul, it includes uh, wonderful pictures and stories and uh, everything you would expect in a devotional. We'll talk more about that when we return. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the first ever devotional book written by Billy Graham's grandson, William Graham, or Will, uh, following in his grandfather's footsteps, preaching stadium crusades around the world. In Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul, he shares intimate stories of growing up in his grandfather's shadow, as well as anecdotes from his travels that speak to the common struggles of the Christian life. But as he mentioned in our first segment, this isn't a book about him or his grandfather. This is a book about Jesus. It was released in October to commemorate uh, what would have been Billy Graham's 100th birthday. Each entry in the book includes a Bible verse, a short prayer, and oftentimes a photo, sometimes of Will and his grandfather and other family members that illustrate each story. He serves currently as a full-time evangelist and executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and three children. The book uh, will encourage you while uh, providing a glimpse into the personal faith of the Graham family 
family whose passion has been shared um, through the gospel for many, many years. Well, let's talk about the book itself. Each chapter reflects, uh, obviously, a different uh, focus. There are 50 chapters. You begin with communion. Uh, describe for our listeners who don't have a copy in front of them how the book is structured and how you um, see this as a devotional. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, each chapter, first and foremost, starts off with Scripture. Mm-hmm. I believe that Scripture is the most important thing. My devotional book is not the most important thing in this world. It's God's Word that's the most important thing. Uh, I'm a preacher of the gospel, and so I want the gospel to be first and foremost on every chapter. And so I start with a verse, and then the, I want to talk about what how I've seen that verse played out in my life, um, the ways I've seen it played out. I think almost all my devotions come from, as I say almost all, I know for one that was, it was before I was born. Well, there's a couple that were before I was born, but these are some of my grandfather's stories um, that he's taught me and told me about. So these are things I've learned from my grandfather, from my dad, from other people in life, things that I've seen on my own when I've been preaching the word. And so I kind of share a story and how that plays out. And then I also give a, I always have a quote of my granddaddy that talks about the subject that we're talking about in each chapter. And then I close with a, just a small prayer. This is a small prayer to help encourage the believer to, to talk to God and hand their problems over to God and allow God to work this message into their heart. And so that's kind of the structure. It's 50 chapters, but they're like two or three pages. Mm-hmm. pages. So it's, these aren't real long chapters and, uh, it's great. This is not a substitute for reading God's Word. <laughs> Make sure that you read God's Word. I hope this just will come alongside of you and encourage you as well as you read God's Word. Well, and it's a wonderful thing that during the course of the day, you might want to read it in the middle of the day or just before you lay your head on the pillow. But it's a wonderful reminder of uh, of the reliability of God's Word, how He works in the lives of His people. And then uh, to see some of these uh, chapters in the context of your family, and we've witnessed the God's faithfulness uh, being worked out in your family. It's just a wonderfully encouraging um, uh Devotional. Now, you also include a prayer with each chapter, which I find is a wonderful way to end a devotion. Well, I do. And, you know, one thing that my grandfather taught me in life, I, I went to go talk to him about one day, and this is the, I was making a very important decision about leaving the local church, which I was a pastor of, to come and help the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And to be honest, I didn't want to do it, but I, I knew God was calling me to do it. I love being a pastor, and I didn't want to leave my church. But God told me to do it, and so I went to go talk to my granddaddy about it. And he told me, he said, Will, he said, we would love and be honored uh, to have you come and work at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It would be wonderful to have my grandson here um, and helping us. He said, that's what the Lord has uh, has you to do. He said, but I, I want to tell you about two things I regret in life. One is, he said, um, I wish I knew the Bible as good as your grandmother. Hmm. And, um he said, uh, your grandmother knew the Bible so well, I wish I knew it as well as she did. And um, and then the second thing was, um, he said, well, I wish I'd spent less time preaching, more time reading God's Word, and more time praying. I wish I'd spent more time on my knees. We could accomplish so much more and see more people come to know Christ if I had preached less, studied more, and prayed more. And um, that spoke volumes to me. And so that's why with at the end of each of these chapters, I want to make sure that we spend time in prayer. There's a small prayer, short prayer, and it's just 
it's just basically us, the reader, talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, these are the things I'm struggling with in my life. These are the things I need help with. Lord, show me how to do it. And uh, allow the Lord to keep molding us and making us into his image. And that's what the goal of the Christian life is to be, is to reflect Christ. And um, I hope this book will enable someone to look more like Jesus at the end of the 50 days. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's such extraordinary advice that your grandfather gave to you. And for those of us who know him as the evangelist, uh, to hear him express any regret at all when you consider the, the millions of people whose lives were impacted by the clear presentation of the gospel in the ministry of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, to hear his advice to his grandson, how did that impact the course of your ministry and, and how you move forward in seeking God's will and how you spend your time in ministry? Well, I appreciate um I wish, I'm not sure if there's ever going to be a person alive that says, oh, yeah, I, sp- I spent enough time in prayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if we'll ever get to that point. Because uh, to be honest, I saw my granddaddy, I, I kind of joke and say I saw him doing three things. Um, he was always reading his Bible. He was always praying. And he was always watching Larry King live. <laughs> <laughs> so he loved watching Larry King live because he loved learning about other people. And Larry King was one of the best at just talking to people and and where people famous people would come on the show and he would get to interview them and you get to know this famous person and uh, my granddad loved watching Larry King because uh, and he used what he learned on Larry King so that when he met this individual in real life sometime down the road he already had a basis for a conversation because he learned it from Larry King's show and so and I say all this because I wish I'd spent more do I spend enough time in prayer no do I spend enough time in God's word? No. And I'm not sure where the right amount is either. And um, I just want to be striving that I keep praying. I spend more time on my knees and listen to my granddaddy do less preaching, more praying, and more studying God's word. And um, and that part, I'm not sure. If, I don't know what that, he didn't tell me that's uh, 30 minutes or an hour. <laughs> I think that's the part that the Holy Spirit's got to lead yeah, here. Yeah, it's a, a worthy so, uh, aspiration. <laughs> well, let's talk exactly. about just the, the, the idea of devotion. Uh, we all have very busy lives. There are things that must be done in order for us to, to um, provide for our families and so on. Uh, and yet we are, are encouraged in Scripture to spend time away in God's Word, to spend time in devotion. Um, this talked a little bit about why it's important for us to designate um, intentionally times in which we just step away, maybe for mere moments, but to step away and spend time in God's presence uh, in a quiet time, uh, reading through a devotion like Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Why is that so important? Well, it, it, something I learned from my great-grandfather. Now, this is not Billy Graham. This would be Billy Graham's father-in-law, Ruth Graham's father, my great-grandfather, who's a missionary in China. And he ran a medical hospital over there, and as a doctor, as a, and then a husband and a father. I mean, he had a lot of responsibilities over there. And he would look at his schedule for the next day, and he said, oh, my goodness, look at all these surgeries i got to do, all these things. He said, I'm going to need to spend more time in prayer. Hmm. And oftentimes when we get busy, we do less prayer. And something my great-grandfather taught me is that we need to spend more time in prayer when we're busy and give it unto the Lord. And... um you know, and I think it's very important that every Christian spend time with the Lord. Listen, I know we spend a lot of time in cars, driving to work, spend stuck in traffic, picking up kids. Man, that's when we can be pouring out our heart to the Lord and uh, praying to the Lord, giving that day to Him. 
it's a great way to keep our mind focused on God and tell us, Lord, you know, help us be slow to speak. <laughs> you know, I think our mouth gets us in more trouble than anything else. And say, Lord, I got some big decisions I got to make. Help me to speak correctly and to be and to speak positively toward other people. Uh, so I can be a positive person around others and help me to be a witness for you. And that comes through prayer. And when we just talk to God, and we spend so much time in the car, we'll listen to radio. And listen, they're going to be listening to your show. That's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but we need to spend time in uh, with God. And uh, that's real important. And, um, and, I, and I'm not a perfect example of it. I'm not a perfect example. But we need to strive to talk more with God and listen to God. And God speaks through his word. And so I want to encourage people to be studying God's word, too. Not just praying, but studying God's word. Yes. Um, a devotional book's a good thing, but it's not a substitute for the Word of God. And we should be spending time in God's Word. That's why I've included God's Word in this, so we can spend a little time in God's Word. But I would encourage your readers or your listeners to be to be reading God's Word on their own, apart from my book. But this book's a great supplement to come along and to encourage you a little bit further in your study as well. Yeah. Once again, the book is titled The Devotional, Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Will Graham, it's been such a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you, and congratulations on your first book. Well, thank you, Georgine. Great talking with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson and is currently available in bookstores. What a tremendous legacy uh, that he can look back uh, on, thinking of his uh, great-grandparents and his grandparents, his father, and so on. But each one of us has the same capacity to leave a legacy of faith and faithfulness. So I think you'll find encouragement in redeemed devotions for the longing soul. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Lois Anderson will join us later this hour. She'll tell us about March for Life, which has been, I think, postponed is probably the better word. It typically is held on Sanctity of Life Sunday. We'll find out what the situation is now. Well, the FBI on Monday released new photos showing the suspect or suspects allegedly responsible for placing pipe bombs in Washington, D.C. last week around the same time rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol, interrupting the official certification of the Electoral College votes by Congress. Their $50,000 reward for any information that leads to the location, arrest, and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the placement of these suspected pipe bombs on the 6th of January at the Republican and Democratic National Committee offices in D.C. And by the way, these were actual incendiary devices. It's not clear whether the images released depict one individual or more than one dressed in a similar fashion. With more protests planned before President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, security experts and law enforcement officials are concerned about the potential for additional bomb threats and attacks on so-called soft targets in Washington, like museums, government buildings that don't have full security infrastructure like the White House. A photo released by the FBI last week showed an individual dressed in a gray sweatshirt with a hood over his uh, or her head and a white mask hiding in the person's face. The individual also wore gloves, sneakers, dark pants, and carried a dark-colored backpack. Well, additional photos released on Monday were zoomed in to show the details of the backpack and the shoes. If uh, the individual is recognized, the FBI is asking uh, to be contacted immediately. Also, uh, U.S. Capitol Police just shared a picture of the man wanted for questioning in connection with the murder of um, Officer Sicknick, 
That's a quote from Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican out of Louisiana. The U.S. Capitol Police didn't immediately return a request for comment, nor did the FBI or Metropolitan Police Department. But the photograph showed an older man with a gray beard wearing a blue knit cap emblazoned with the words or rather the letters CFD. He was wearing a checkered coat and carrying a backpack. A second picture showed the man was wearing camouflage pants and what appeared to be black shoes. Well, two U.S. officials, Representative Bill uh, Pascrell of uh, New Jersey, a Democrat, and Pete Olson, a Republican out of Texas, quickly circulated the pictures on social media, urging people to contact the authorities if they recognized him. People were asked to call the FBI. Well, President-elect Joe Biden still plans to be sworn in on the steps of the U.S. Capitol on January 20th, exactly two weeks after a pro-Trump mob with rioters wielding Confederate flags stormed the building to attack the very nation Biden was elected to lead. Well, that moment shrouded in symbolism will launch a 59th presidential inauguration set. Uh, set to take place under extraordinary circumstances. The event was already scaled down and subdued by the coronavirus pandemic, and now the administration has the added weight of showing strength and stability that they're to the rest of the world, which watched in horror as uh, uh, institutions in America wavered from the exact place where he is to take the oath of office. While changes uh, could still be made as of last week, Biden's inauguration and swearing in, we're set to take place on the west front of the U.S. Capitol. We are confident in our security partners who have spent uh, months planning and preparing for the inauguration, and we are continuing to work with them to ensure the utmost safety and security of the president-elect. That's a quote from a senior Biden inauguration official last week speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss security matters. This will mark a new day for the American people focused on healing our nation, bringing our country together, and building it back better. I do hope that's true. Well, following weeks of historic unrest, the Biden administration is hoping that the inauguration will draw attention toward the importance of national unity and away from President Trump, who said in a tweet on Friday that he would not attend the event. He would be the first president to skip his successor swearing-in ceremony in 152 years, which means it's not unprecedented. Well, some involved in the inauguration planning who've been uh, in close contact with security agencies noted that the security footprint for the event will be uh, much larger than it was on Wednesday at the Capitol when the uh, disruption of the Senate and House um, lawmakers accepting the uh, election results took place. The inauguration is uh, deemed a national special security event, which brings in a wide range of federal agencies and law enforcement officials that create a wide security perimeter with road closures and barriers around the Capitol, the Secret Service, the agency responsible for designating and implementing a security operation plan for such events, released a statement on Thursday night stressing its readiness for Inauguration Day. Meanwhile, the FBI has also reportedly um, visited and urged pro-Trump extremists, as they're being referred to by the FBI now, not to travel to Washington uh, an internal FBI memo is warning of plans for armed protests in all 50 states, uh, capital cities ahead of the president's uh, president-elect's inauguration. Now, one would hope they're warning any insurrectionists, if you will, from coming to Washington for that purpose, right, left, and whomever else. A federal law enforcement source says that an internal bureau memo is warning that the protests could be staged before, on, or after Inauguration Day. 
In a statement to Fox News, the FBI said that they do not comment on specific intelligence products, but said that the FBI is supporting uh, the state, local and federal law enforcement partners with maintaining public safety in the communities they serve. Our efforts are focused on identifying, investigating and disrupting individuals that are inciting violence and engaging in criminal activity. Again, a quote from the FBI, as we do not in the normal course of business, we are gathering information uh, to identify any potential threats and are sharing that information with our partners. The FBI respects the rights of individuals to peacefully exercise their First Amendment rights. We went on to add that our focus is not on peaceful protesters, but on those threatening their safety and the safety of other citizens with violence and disruptive and destructive behavior. The memo comes uh, as it's been learned that the FBI received more than 40,000 digital media tips, including videos and photos from the public regarding participants in last week's Capitol riot. So the public is cooperating with efforts to identify those who are responsible for breaching the security. Sources say that uh, the FBI visited extremists prior to the January 6th pro-Trump rally and Capitol riot, urging them not to travel to Washington It's not clear at this point how many uh, were contacted and how far in advance of that uh, of that event. Well, authorities are bracing, as I mentioned, for potential violence uh, from Boogaloo protesters. What on earth is Operation Boogaloo? Well, law enforcement agencies across the country are bracing for the possibility uh, that there is going to be an effort for those um, uh, calling themselves part of this effort. Yahoo News exclusively reported that the FBI's Minneapolis field office memo sent to local and state agencies at the end of December cited collaborative sources who told investigators that members of Boogaloo, the Boogaloo movement, would be hosting potentially violent events on the 17th. Some followers indicated willingness to commit violence in support of their ideology, created uh, contingency plans in the event uh, violence occurs at the events, and identified law enforcement security measures and possible countermeasures, the December 29th memo states. Well, members of the uh, pro-gun Boogaloo movement advocate for a second civil war or the collapse of society, and they don't adhere to a coherent political philosophy. They often wear Hawaiian shirts and tactical gear and carry high-powered rifles. Um, There's a rather interesting reference to the name. It comes from the 1984 movie Break Into Electric Boogaloo. I won't go into uh, all of that, but it does indicate that on both ends of the continuum, there are those who are willing to resort to violence to achieve their ultimate ends whether that's Antifa or Operation Boogaloo or anything in between, it cannot, it must not be tolerated. And those who engage in these kinds of violent acts and the destruction of public and private property must be held accountable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf is stepping down. Wolf sent a letter to the Department of Human Service employees on Monday afternoon informing them of his decision. He wrote, I am saddened to take this step as it was my intention to serve the department until the end of this administration. He wrote, unfortunately, this action is warranted by recent events, including the ongoing and meritless court ruling regarding the validity of my authority as acting secretary. Well, Wolf went on to say that Pete Gaynor, the Federal uh, Emergency Management Agency or FEMA administrator, 
will become the acting secretary of DHS. He tweeted the statement later on Monday. Be proud of what we have accomplished, uh, Wolf said to DHS employees. The homeland is safer and more secure because of your efforts. Wolf's resignation came at a tumultuous time for the administration, an apparent conflict between him and the president. A source from the Department of Homeland Security, um, a front office source, said that it was explicitly not a protest resignation. A White House spokesman reportedly denied the withdrawal was related to Wednesday's events or Wolf's comments on Thursday. However, a source close to Wolf told uh, news outlets that the Capitol riots factored into his decision. Trump had nominated Wolf to serve as permanent DHS secretary, but withdrew the nomination shortly after Wolf publicly urged the president to condemn last week's riots at the Capitol. According to a senior administration official, Wolf was no longer eligible to serve as acting secretary. Well, I sure wish these people would get it together. A Republican state representative caught on video, and this is here in the state of Oregon, caught on video opening the doors of the Oregon Capitol to demonstrators, was removed from his legislative committees, billed for the damages caused by the group, and called on to resign by the top House lawmaker. Now, these were demonstrators on the right. Representative Mike Nearman of Independence endangered everyone inside the building when he allowed violent demonstrators inside. That's what House Speaker Tina Kotek from Portland said. Security video obtained uh, shows Nearman opening two doors during the December 21st special legislative session. His actions have created immense fear among legislators and Capitol staff, Kotek said in a news release that was issued late yesterday. I believe he should resign immediately because he has already breached the public trust and endangered our ability to safely conduct the people's business. Uh, Nearman told the Oregonian that uh, his lawyers had advised him not to talk to the press and said he would be putting out a statement on Tuesday, so sometime today. The news about Nearman being uh, removed from his committee assignments was first reported by the Oregon Public Broadcasting. Several dozen demonstrators, most of whom were not wearing masks, were protesting the state's coronavirus restrictions outside the Capitol. They gained access to the building in part because Nearman opened the door. Other protesters also tried to enter by breaking the window uh, in another door. Well, some people attempted to disrupt a legislative session underway, but were intercepted by state troopers and Salem police. Now, some rioters were carrying rifles and others sprayed troopers with chemical substance. They now believe to have been pepper spray. Some protesters also attacked journalists who were reporting on the events. At least five people have been arrested as a result of the event. State police had previously confirmed uh, troopers are investigating Nearman's actions on that day. Uh, Kotek said that she stripped Nearman of his two committee assignments and rescinded his commission appointments. He was supposed to sit on a joint information technology committee and a joint ways and means subcommittee when the legislature convenes in 2021 session on Tuesday. Instead, he now faces Kotek's call to resign. The House Speaker also fined him $2,000 for the property damage protesters caused. In her statement issued on Monday, Kotex said that she and other representatives plan to file formal conduct complaints with the Legislative Equity Office, alleging that the lawmaker created a hostile work environment. Nearman agreed to several terms regarding his work at the Capitol, including relinquishing his badge to access the building, agreeing not to let any non-authorized persons inside, and giving 24 hours notice before he enters. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler continued today to decry protest-related vandalism in this city, Portland, 
and elsewhere around the state, but conceded police and politicians are currently ill-equipped to effectively crack down on the activity. Now, here in Portland, these are protesters primarily on the left with a few rights sprinkled in. We're seeing this larger trend of criminal destruction taking place, not just in Portland. It's happening in Salem and Eugene. Just last week, it happened in Tigard. And the toolkit that is available to law enforcement is limited, he said. Wheeler said uh, in an interview with the Oregonian, it's uh, limited, insufficient, and it's imperfect. Well, the mayor and other officials remain stymied by the small groups of demonstrators who for months have disguised their identities during protests and smashed out windows at businesses and government buildings, spray-painted graffiti, set fires, or clashed with police. Now, Wheeler's recently taken a, a more aggressive stance toward such illegal activity following back-to-back nights of violence and vandalism in Portland, including a riot on New Year's Eve that left extensive damage to downtown storefronts. Describing the suspected perpetrators as violent Antifa and anarchists, the mayor on New Year's Day asked state lawmakers to create tougher criminal penalties for protest-related property destruction and amend current laws to allow police to conduct greater surveillance at demonstrations. Wheeler also vowed to convene local, state, and federal law enforcement officials to determine how to best respond to the ongoing lawlessness that's come to eclipse demand for racial justice and police reform by those taking to the streets. Again, it seems like too little too late, but at least now that his election bid has completed and he succeeded, perhaps he'll begin to take um, effective action to address this blight on the city of Portland. Well, Facebook announced on Monday that it's removing all content that contains the phrase stop the steal ahead of the president-elect Joe Biden's inauguration day. The company issued a statement saying it was removing content containing the phrase that we used by supporters of the president to question the integrity of the 2020 general election. The social media company said that the move is an attempt to remove content that could incite further violence during these uh, next few weeks. Content will be removed under the company's coordinating harm policy. We've been allowing robust conversations related to the election uh, outcome, and that will uh, continue, Facebook officials uh, say uh, in a statement. But with the continued attempts to organize events against the outcome of the U.S. presidential election that can lead to violence and use of the term uh, by those involved in Wednesday's violence, we're taking this additional step in the lead up to the inauguration. So the gatekeepers have spoken and apparently Stop the Steal has been added to that list. Well, one of the things I appreciated was a, um, a column that published some of what was being permitted on Parler that prompted uh, some of these social media sites to remove uh, that content. Um, Caleb Howell published a number of, um, of items. Now, Parler was designed to be a free speech forum. Uh, it was not designed to try to curate what was permitted and what was not permitted, so it was supposed to be sort of a alternative to what is now becoming more and more censored social media sites. And um, looking at some of the content raises eyebrows. Now, it, it goes to the heart of what Parler was supposed to have been. But one of the criticisms on the left has been a lot of people on the right who are decrying censorship or unaware of what was there. Let me just quote a few of them for you, uh, and you can make your own decision. Here's one from New Ken. Uh, P-A-T-R. Sounds like war. It would be a pity if someone with explosives training 
were to pay a visit to some AWS data centers, the locations of which are public knowledge. Another one wrote, on January, we need to start systematically assassinating liberal leaders, liberal activists, um, uh, hashtag BIM, or no, BLM, it's kind of hard to read, leaders and supporters, members of the NBA, NFL, MLB, and so on, um, anchors and correspondents, and Antifa. I already um, have a newsworthy event planned and we don't know what that was referring to. It was published sometime in January, if, if uh, the 6th was what they were referring to. Here's uh, just one more, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. You liberals and dirty left Democrats and Antifa and BLM and rhino politicians and Muslims who are against our country, our president, our constitution, and burning down our jobs, burning down our businesses, burning down our life, he goes on. Uh, I'll give you something free. A bullet, he goes on to say, I'm paraphrasing because much of this I couldn't, um, couldn't quote. But these are some of the posts that um, are being cited as reasons for the censorship of the site, the site which was designed to not censor content. So what do you do with these kinds of posts? Um, again, just giving you insight into reasons being given by Facebook, Twitter, and others as to why um, this particular platform is no longer available. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I believe it was yesterday, maybe the day before, I received an email, as I often do from Oregon Right to Life, that began, Dear Advocate, after thoughtful consideration, counsel, and prayer, I took a deep breath because I wasn't sure where this was going. I have made the decision to postpone the Oregon March for Life. Oh, well, joining us to talk about this decision is Lois Anderson. She's the executive director for Oregon Right to Life. Welcome, first of all. I suppose we're not surprised, given our current climate and the pandemic, that this event would be, and I want to emphasize, postponed. But it certainly is sad to think that we're not going to be gathered together later this month. Um, it is sad. That is no doubt about that. I do want to say that there are some smaller community gatherings that are happening Um we uh, posted those in Life in Oregon, and we'll be um, also emailing out about those. So th there will be some some gatherings and some uh, marches that are happening around the state. But everything kind of came together even before the incidents at the United States Capitol last <laughs> last week, um, where we really felt from the council we were getting um, in particular from some retired law enforcement officers who we work with on this event um, that they really believed that we needed to postpone it. So it is a sad day for sure um, because it is an important event uh, to for pro-lifers to gather and to bear witness to the fact that we still have legal abortion through all nine months in Oregon. Yeah, it's really breathtaking. And there's something so encouraging about standing shoulder to shoulder in solidarity with other pro-lifers from around the state to acknowledge um, these, what, 61 million now, I think 61 million lives lost to legal abortion and to renew our commitment uh, to resist the ongoing slaughter of the innocents. Exactly. Uh, the good news is, though, is that we don't have to only do it in January. We do it in January because we're commemorating the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, but we can still do it and we can, we'll 
look forward to doing it safely in the spring. And we're, we're working on a date now. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And will that be in Portland or Salem, do you expect? We will go ahead and do it in Salem um, mm-hmm. as we, we moved it to Salem last year, and we're planning on doing it in Salem this year. So we're, we're going to work with all the folks that we've been working with um, to put it on in January, and we'll put it on in the spring when we are able to come up with a date that works for the many different agencies that you have to work with to uh, schedule something at the Capitol. Now, am I mistaken? Is there a virtual event that's going to be on Saturday, January the 23rd uh, in place of the march? Yes. So the way to access it will be through, um, it'll be on Facebook Live. We're working on another live option, um, but for now it will be on our Facebook page live. And then we will post the video um, on all of our other channels, including our website afterwards. So there will be a live event. Um, so far, almost everyone that um, had committed to speak at the event is also going to be able to deliver their remarks in our live event. So there'll be an opportunity to um, do what we have been doing for quite a while now and, and gather together virtually. Oh, excellent. What time is that likely to be? It will be at 2.30. We're just going to do it the same time, the same day, since everyone kind of had that on their calendar anyway. Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, that raises questions about the annual conference, Oregon Right to Life's annual conference, which uh, is held in March. What are the prospects of that conference moving forward? Well, they're good right now. Um, as everyone knows, we just kind of have to roll with changes as they happen. But we're working with Rolling Hills Community Church, and it looks like we'll be able to have um, some limits. We'll have We'll probably have to have a cap on attendance, but um, we're also hopeful that that will be lifted or increased as we move closer to that date. But it will be in person. Um, it'll just look a little bit different than we're used to. We won't be able to um, network and, and visit quite as much as we're used to being able to do. But we, our speakers are still planning on coming. Um, we have Christine Bennett, who is on social media as a black pro-life woman. She's from Connecticut and is a wonderful speaker, has an inspirational story. Um, really looking forward to welcoming her. And then we're bringing Josh Brom from Equal Rights Institute and Monica Snyder from Secular Pro-Life, who did a workshop last year and was phenomenally popular. She got wonderful reviews. So we um, are bringing her back for one of our main sessions. Excellent. Why do you think it's important these many years since the passage of Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton? Why is it important to acknowledge that decision and what has happened since um, on an annual basis? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Um, I I speak frequently with um, young people who are getting involved in the movement, or even those that um, have been involved in the movement, and I like to ask their ask them about their story. So many of them point to either the Oregon event or the Washington, D.C. event or maybe an event in another state where they lived as being that touch point when they were together with that group where they heard the message of the injustice of abortion and were motivated to find out what they could do to continue to be involved. And that still is a very important role for for this event. 
Um, and also just the truth of bearing witness and mm-hmm. standing together and being a presence and showing um, your neighbors and your family and um, everybody. Now that we have this ability to share things, you know, electronically um, to show that we are still here. We're not going to stop doing this until this injustice has, has ended and ended in, in there's lots of ways to end abortion. You can end abortion by making it illegal, which is what we want to do. But you can also end abortion by helping everyone in your sphere of influence to know how you feel, what you think, and that you are there to help them if they ever find themselves in a situation where Mm -hmm. they would think about choosing abortion. Um, There's more than one way that we can make abortion unthinkable and to end it. Absolutely. I would add to your list as a member of the old guard, um, that it's always encouraging to me to stand either from the platform where we've had the opportunity over the past few years to lead worship or in the crowd as just a member of the pro-life community to look out over the faces of young people and the elderly children who are there to say, yes, we embrace the sanctity of human life and to to know that we together are making an impact and will continue to make an impact. That just blesses my soul every year. I totally agree with that. It is an amazing blessing and it's a, a privilege when you do, when you're on the stage and, and looking out, but when you're in the middle of the crowd too, you can see Absolutely. and feel, feel that fellowship. It is very, very important. Well, once again, for folks who would like to attend the virtual event on Saturday, January the 23rd, you have uh, Facebook live. How else can they uh, view this virtual event? We're going to be sending out another email um, because we're a little bit unsure right now with uh, so many things happening with different platforms. But um, we will be able to post the video after the live event on our YouTube channel and on our webpage. Um, But we're we're hoping to find another alternative in addition to the Facebook Live for people to access. And we'll we'll let folks know. It'll be on our website or um, where they can can see that or uh, in our email. Well, Lois, I so appreciate your leadership. I know there's a tremendous weight of responsibility uh, on your shoulders as you're making decisions about the future moving forward and this event in particular. So we need to be praying for you and for uh, the staff and leaders at Oregon Right to Life as you move forward into this very challenging season that we find ourselves in. Uh, but again, I commend you for continuing to do the work and providing uh, ways for us to come alongside and do the same. So thank you so much. Thank you, Georgine. I always appreciate being able to speak with you. Hope you have a great new year, and we'll look forward to uh, seeing you on the 23rd, Saturday, January 23rd, for the virtual March for Life. Thanks, Lois. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Dr. Robert Jeffress Uh, who breathlessly endorsed the Trump administration without any explanation or asterisk that would say, uh, these are areas with which we have broad agreements. These are areas that, as a pastor, I could not endorse. So I think a lot of people were very puzzled by his breathless endorsement of the president. But this is what he wrote now in light of what has uh, happened in the Capitol. 
He says, what the angry mob did storming into the Capitol was not only a crime, it was a sin against God. Throughout 2020, we all grew weary of hearing the word unprecedented. Many of us hoped that unprecedented would fall out uh, out of use once the calendar turned to the new year, and normal would be the word for 2021. Well, that fantasy was shatter- shattered rather this week. The events that unfolded in Washington and the Capitol on Wednesday were unprecedented as well as despicable and wrong. I've been an outspoken supporter of President Trump, he goes on to say, since the early days of his first presidential campaign. As a pastor, my motivation has always been biblical. His policies lined up best with the principles I find in Scripture. Uh, These include, for example, support for the sanctity of human life and defense of religious liberty. My fidelity to the teachings of the Bible led to to my continued support for the Trump administration's policy agenda and, in the process, I have also developed a personal friendship with the president over the last five years that I value. It was almost my unwavering commitment to the teachings of scripture that compelled me to condemn the violence and riots that broke out during Black Lives Matter protests last summer. The same commitment to the um, teachings of Christ found in scripture informs my sentiments today about what we witnessed at the Capitol on Wednesday. What the angry mob did by storming into the Capitol was not only a crime, it was a sin against God. He goes on to write, every American can assemble to protest. This is a God-given right acknowledged and protected by the First Amendment. Peaceful protest is a vital part of our political tradition, and it has long served well. What happened on Wednesday when a mob infiltrated the Capitol building was not a protest, it was lawlessness. It doesn't matter what your political cause is, whether it's left or right, far left or far right. No good, no good end can be sought by rotten means. Shouting profanities, beating back police officers, destroying property, intimidating elected officials. These are not forms of political argument, no matter who uses them. They are just an ungodly power grab. Celebrating evil is evil. It corrodes the soul. Too many of us in the heat of this political moment have fallen into an all-consuming hatred of our fellow Americans, fellow human beings made in God's image. This bitterness has clouded our vision, causing us to lose sight of God's command to love and seek peace. The Apostle Paul told us to seek out common ground and unity whenever we can. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The same Paul who wrote these inspired words about seeking peace before his conversion to Christianity participated in and approved of radical violence done against his enemies. The first time Paul showed up in the Bible, he is the guy watching the coats for a mob of people who angrily stoned an innocent Christian to death. That's in Acts 7, verse 58. He was breathing threats and murder against his sworn enemies when he set off to the road to Damascus. There is one way and one way only to change an embittered, riotous heart like that, an encounter with the risen and reigning Son of God. This is what happened for Paul in Acts 9. Hate melted away in an instant and turned into sacrificial love in the blinding light of the glorified Christ. So changed, so transformed by this event, the same man who once celebrated violence later wrote, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4. Seeking peace doesn't require laying aside or compromising your deeply held convictions. I know I haven't, he goes on to write, but every political cause has to be sought in the right way, not through violence and hatred, but instead with respect for law, personal humility, and charity toward all. 
My prayer for America is that people from all over the political spectrum would find freedom from slavery to bitterness and anger today. Bitterness and wrath consume the containers that hold them, but through Christ you can be transformed into an agent of reconciliation that helps unite a fractured country. I don't know about you, but I am exhausted by all that's taken place over these last weeks and months. Certainly there is the political rancor, there's the violence and movements across the country, some of which have legitimate uh, core, uh, but are expressed in ways by those who care less about the uh, the core of the issue than they do about opportunities to re- create um, episodes of violence and unrest. It's exhausting, and I appreciate being reminded of what the Apostle Paul had to go through and what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. It can be difficult, it can be exhausting, but thankfully, we're not called upon to do that on our own, in our own steam. We have access to the Holy Spirit, which we receive as believers at the time we come to faith in Christ. And when we yield to the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, he can change our hearts. Now, it may be very difficult to imagine if you hate Donald Trump and those who support him, it's difficult to imagine being anything other than completely put out by what he has done and what his people have done. If you are in the group that are very angry and frustrated by liberals, the media, and those who have positions of influence that mischaracterize your particular point of view, it may seem impossible to imagine ever being in a situation where you can look an individual in the face and have genuine care and concern that even the scripture says reflects love for one's enemy. And yet that is precisely, that impossibility is precisely what believers are called to to love even our enemies. It doesn't mean to endorse what they're doing. It doesn't mean to embrace what is wrong, but it does mean that there is a way, because we're called to it, there is a way to do what's right, to hold what is true, and still love one's enemies. And it seems to me the only group of people in this country that has the capacity, that has the power to do just that, are followers of Jesus when we put in proper order um, what's most important. Now, I know what happens in Washington with the inauguration and the next administration is significant. Decisions are going to be made that's going to impact every aspect of American life. And I sometimes lament the fact that we have so elevated the executive branch um, that we, we look too much to the executive to provide all of our needs according to his riches in Washington, uh, that we uh, find members of Congress who are unwilling to persuade the American people have put all of their hope in the judiciary, hoping that they will do uh, what these representatives of the people cannot do. But I would caution all of us, and I speak to my own heart, um, our hope and our peace and the future will not be shaped there in ways that will be satisfying and useful. We need to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow him to change us in ways that, quite frankly, are impossible. So let's do the impossible together as we yield to Christ. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.